0: Tuesday afternoon, Passion Week. It was the week that Jesus Christ would be crucified. This afternoon, he had just completed teaching his disciples, those he had been traveling with for three and a half years, about things to come. In fact, it was six months prior to this Tuesday afternoon, when Jesus Christ was in the upper Galilee in Caesarea Philippi, the foothills of Mount Hermon. Peter looked at Jesus Christ after the Lord had asked, Well, who do you say that I am? And he said, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Six days later, the Bible tells us in the book of Matthew chapter 17, they went up onto the slopes of Mount Hermon and the transfiguration took place. At that point in time, prophecy was being fulfilled because that six days earlier in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus had said, some of you will not die until you see me come in my glorified body. And there on the slopes of Mount Hermon, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus Christ stood in their glorified bodies. Jesus had told them during that time in the northern Galilee that he would have to go to Jerusalem. He would die. He would be crucified. He would be resurrected from the dead. Peter was the one who rebuked him after having used his lips to Pronounced Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And for the six months leading up to this Tuesday afternoon, he had returned to Capernaum, spent a couple of months continuing to build into his disciples' truth about the future and what was going to happen. Because it was these six months and this week of passion he would talk about things to come. He would be crucified. He would be buried. He would be resurrected from the dead. And for 40 days after that, before his ascension into heaven, he would continue to teach prophecy. When he would send his last word back to the body of Christ, and in particular to those disciples, and in particular those seven churches in Asia Minor, in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three, he would give seven messages of prophecy, things to come. You see, Jesus Christ realized that all of the prophecies in the Word of God of His first coming were fulfilled in Him. And those prophecies, five times as many on His first coming, relating to His second coming, were yet to be fulfilled. He had answered on that Tuesday afternoon their question, can you give us some signs when you will come back? In fact, they asked three questions that Tuesday because as he completed his study on the Temple Mount, he stepped away from this majestic temple standing 21 stories high, covered with 24-karat pure gold. As he stepped away, he made this statement. There's not going to be a stone upon a stone on this building. Can you see old Peter? John, did you hear what he said? Not a stone upon a stone. Well, Herod was 46 years building this magnificent temple. The rabbis say, if you've never seen Herod's temple, you've never seen a beautiful building. What is Jesus talking about? They, too, went through the eastern gate across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus had gone and, and sat down customary for a rabbinical teacher. They came to him, when is that going to happen? They were referring to, what is this building, this majestic building in the uh, Jerusalem skyline, when is it going to be destroyed? He didn't respond in the passage we're going to look at in just a moment to that question. But there was a second question, can you give us some signs of when you're coming back? And when are you going to set up this kingdom that we've been talking about for these three and a half years? Jesus does respond to that particular question of signs for his coming, and then the next one, when are you going to set up this kingdom? If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. We have in Matthew 24 a record of the most profound prophetic conference that ever has taken place in the history of the world. It's called the Olivet Discourse. There are parallel passages in the Gospels. In the book of Mark chapter 13, the book of Luke chapter 21, he does indeed respond to that first question, when is this temple going to be destroyed? And in 70 AD, the fulfillment of that prophecy took place when the Roman soldiers under General Titus came into Jerusalem and devastated the temple. In fact, how the process would take place that the prophecy would be fulfilled was that as General Titus... And his Roman soldiers, having been bivouacked on the Mount of Olives, came across the Kidron Valley. He said, you see that building with all the gold on it? You can have every bit of gold on that building. He was motivating his soldiers. They went to the temple, and they ripped every stone upon every stone off of that building to get the gold. Thus, not a stone upon a stone. And the prophecy of Jesus Christ, this one that he gave there on the temple mount, on Tuesday of Passion Week before he would be crucified in several days was absolutely fulfilled just exactly like he said it was. Here in Matthew 24, this record of prophecy in the future. And Jesus Christ understood he must tell his men, those who had built into their lives, he must tell them what it was going to be like. Now there's so much in this passage of Scripture that we could deal with I'm going to zero in on two particular statements that he made that will give us evidence in light of what is happening today that we are quickly approaching the time to which he was referring. Now, I said they wanted to know questions or signs about the coming of the Lord back to the earth. That is different than the next event in eschatology or end-time events that will take place. Let me use a microphone stand here. To illustrate what I'm talking about, i place this microphone stand here in a timeline that would basically start at the wall over there. Let's indicate uh, through our little illustration here that the wall would be 6,000 years ago when Jesus Christ created the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. Coming along for 4,000 years, Jesus Christ comes, lives, died, buried, resurrects, goes to heaven we come along for 2,000 years and we quickly approach this next event represented by this microphone stand, which is the rapture of the church. The Bible tells us in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, that Jesus Christ will descend out of the heavenly someplace in the clouds. He will shout, the archangel will shout, the trumpet of God will sound, and we will be caught up to be with him in the air. Now the rapture of the church has not taken place yet. I am convinced of that. Pastor and I are still here. Uh, Should we disappear during the service, you're in deep trouble. Uh, You better make arrangements for something in the future. But the rapture, the next main event in God's calendar of activities. So I understand the scriptures after that rapture, there will be a seven-year period of time. It's referred to as the tribulation period. It's also referred to as the time of Jacob's troubles, a time of judgment. It's going to be a seven-year period of time when Jesus Christ will unleash Judgment upon the earth to draw the Jewish people in particular to look to him to bring an end to Gentile world powers and to bring an end to the activities of Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet, the satanic trinity. The Bible talks about this seven year period of time and defines it, describing it very detailed in the book of Revelation chapter 4 verse 2 through chapter 19 verse 10. Fifteen chapters in God's word dedicated to describing this Seven year period of time. It is followed then by chapter 19, verse 11, and the rest of the 19th chapter of Revelation with the return of Christ when he comes back, Zechariah 14, 4, to the city of Jerusalem, touching down on the Mount of Olives. The Bible tells us in Revelation 19 we join him on white horses returning to the city of Jerusalem. In the question that the disciples would confront Jesus with about signs of his coming, He was referring to this second event, the return of Jesus Christ back to the earth. Not the rapture of the church, not the calling up of those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today into the heavenlies. But instead, a seven year event after that, the rapture is followed by the second coming of Christ. And that's exactly what he was referring to when he was giving them signs. By the way, the Jew requires a sign. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, God said the Jews require signs in the Old Testament. He said, I will not do anything unless I tell the Jewish people of what I'm doing. The rapture is involving Christians, and we have no signs for the rapture. In fact, there are no signs for the rapture. In fact, every prophecy that has to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church has been fulfilled. The rapture the next event basically initiates the fulfillment of the rest of the prophecies that are talked about throughout all of the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in particular in the book of Revelation. So in Matthew 24, when we come to this profound prophetic conference being held by Jesus Christ, we're not talking about, give me some signs for the rapture of the church, but instead, give me some signs for your return to the earth. Now logic says, if we can look at these signs those things happening in the seven-year period of time leading up to the second coming, and they seem to be moving into place or nearing fulfillment logically, we then can determine the rapture must be very close at hand. If we're so close to a second coming, this preceded by the uh, rapture of the church, we must be very close to the rapture. So let's spend a few moments in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Let me point out just two. There's so many profound things that we could bring to your attention here. You might remember Matthew 24. It's when he talks about wars and rumors of wars. And as I was uh, speaking on this subject the other day in Columbus, Georgia, I was corrected. I said there were 53 conflicts going on someplace in the war, in the world, in a war of some type. And I was confronted by a lieutenant colonel after the service. You know, Columbus is a military town. He said, Dr. DeYoung, I have been at the War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. There are 157 conflicts going on in this world. I could talk about that. Jesus Christ also said that there would be deception, signs, wonders, and miracles that would precede his coming, the devil deceiving, Antichrist appearing we could talk about the revived roman empire which seems to be coming into focus as we look at the european union and their most recent treaty which calls for a supra state and a supra leader of the european union it fits a uh, some type of a prototype or a precursor uh, to the end time prophecy of daniel chapter 7 he talks about earthquakes in diverse places we can hardly pick up the paper or listen to the news without hearing about another earthquake some place on this earth, well, there's so much we can talk about, but look with me, if you will, to verse 15, because I want to check out verse 15, what he was referring to when he said that Daniel's prophecy would be fulfilled in this particular time. Notice what it says here. In verse 15, And when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. Now that terminology, if you have not been studying much about prophecy, the abomination of desolation may be unfamiliar to you. let me just tell you there was a prototype back in the year 168 B.C., During a period of time when the Grecian Empire was in place, uh, the world powers were uh, led by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the madman. He came to Jerusalem. He walked into the temple. He desecrated the temple. He slaughtered a pig actually on the altar, which is an unkosher animal. He made this statement to all Jews, no more sacrifice in the temple unless it is a pig. For a three-year period of time, the temple was desecrated. Finally, as the Bible indicates in the book of Daniel chapter 11, there were those people who believed God and they rose up against Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, In history, we know that that would have been the Maccabees. Matthias Maccabee, Judas Maccabee, all of the Maccabee boys, they rose up and they ran Antiochus Epiphanes out of town. They actually then came into the temple Three years to the day after Antiochus had desecrated the temple, they found a flask of virgin olive oil. They took the menorah, the seven-branched candelabra. They put that flask of oil into the menorah, lighted the menorah. And it should have been just lighted for one day, but it stayed lighted for eight days. Thus the Jewish holy day of Hanukkah, the celebration of the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Lights, which Jesus himself celebrated in the book of John chapter 10. Isn't that interesting? He celebrates the Feast of Lights, and in John 8, 9, and 11, he claims to be the light of the world, which is exactly what that piece of furniture in the temple, the menorah, represents a prototype of Christ to come. Well, the temple had been desecrated with the abomination of desolation. Jesus is telling them now, sometime during this seven-year period of time, that the temple once again that stands on the Temple Mount of the city of Jerusalem will be desecrated with an abomination of desolation. You have to refer back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 says this, And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant, a treaty, a peace treaty, with many, with the Jewish people, for one week or a seven-year period of time. And in the midst of that week, he will cause the sacrifice to cease. Now, that seems to indicate that if the sacrifice is going to be in process, then there must be a temple standing on the Temple Mount sometime during this seven-year period of time. Daniel's prophecy, which Jesus was referring to, says that at the midway point of that tribulation, of that time of judgment, this temple will be desecrated. You may be thinking, well, wait a minute supposed to be a temple desecrated in the city of Jerusalem during this period of time, and you seem to be telling us we must be quickly approaching this time. How is that going to take place? There is no temple in Jerusalem. (laughs) Yes, I, I know that, remember. I live in Jerusalem have lived there for the last 15 years. There is no temple. Where that spot is located, that the first and second temple stood, there is a Dome of the Rock put up in 691 A.D., a commemorative building standing on the Temple Mount at the exact same spot over the Holy of Holies. That foundation stone under the Dome of the Rock is where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and he would offer the sacrifice And so there is no temple, but there is additional information you need to know. A temple can actually be, with our technology today, erected in about six months. But what must take place before that is the preparations for all of that temple operation to take place. For example, if you study the Word of God, there are 28,000 priests that are needed to operate the temple. Now, they don't all work at one time. David set out a course for each of them to work a two year, excuse me, a two week period of time throughout the year for the purpose of serving in the temple. They would all come together for the special high holy days of the Jewish people. But normally they would work a two week period of time. That's what's referred to in Luke chapter 1 when it said that Zacharias, in his course, was serving at a certain time in the temple complex. So you need 28,000 priests. Not too long ago, I was in a yeshiva. A yeshiva is a place of learning for Jewish young men. It's like a seminary for Christians. I walked into the yeshiva. Rabbi Nachman Kahana was seated at his computer. He was studying the Torah on the computer, the first five books of the Old Testament. I asked the rabbi, I was very inquisitive as to what was going on, do you use that computer for anything else? He said, I do. And I said, what? He said, I have a database on this computer. I said, a database of what? He said, I have a database of every male Jew that's qualified to be a priest. Well, I said, why? He said, because we have contacted these men, we've invited them to come to Jerusalem, and they are studying now the priestly duties. I said, well, well, wait a minute, Uh, what for? He said, because we are going to put up a temple, and they need to know how to operate the temple. I happen to be a Baptist, but I'm a Bapticoastal sometimes. When it comes to certain things. And as I heard him say that, I started to get excited. But I wanted to know more about these men who were studying the priestly duties. I said, Well, I, and I know this by my study of scripture about the priests, that they have to have a special garment. It has to be made out of one piece of cloth. I said, What about the priestly garments? He said, We have them all made, they're in storage. Now I'm lifting a bit higher off the seat as I'm listening to this rabbi tell me what's going on. I said, what about the implements that have to be used in the temple? For example, the Mizraq. You know what the Mizraq is? It's a picture-shaped item made out of pure gold and silver. It is what they put the sacrificial blood in. It doesn't have a base so you can set it down. Instead, it's pointed on the bottom. So the, uh, the priests cannot set this Mizraq down. They have to keep it moving unless the blood would coagulate." I said, uh, what about those? You probably need about 4,000. He said, they're all made. And as I continued to talk with this rabbi, I became very, very excited about what had been done to prepare to build a temple in the city of Jerusalem. Finally, I thought of something. I said, wait a minute. King David called for 4,000 harps to be played by the Levites in the harp orchestra when the temple stood on the temple. What about that, rabbi? He said, go over to number 10, King David Street. Love that address. So I went over to number 10, King David Street, walked into the harp studio of Micah and Shoshana Harari. They had moved from Vermont over to Jerusalem, a Jewish couple. uh, Micah was a Finnish carpenter. He could make anything with a hammer and saw. And I was talking to them, and they related this story to me. One day, a couple of years before I was talking with them, Shoshana had requested of Micah, her husband, for her upcoming birthday that he make her a harp. Now at first he refused. He said, no, I don't know how to make a harp. She started, you know how you girls do, it's my birthday, I want a harp. And he said, okay, quit harping, I'll make you a harp. He went up to the Jezreel Valley, walked into a cave, found a ten-string harp carved on the wall like King David used to use, made a copy of it, came back to Jerusalem and built the ten-string harp. The Jerusalem Post thought this was very unique. They did a feature story on it, and the uh, journalist who wrote the story did some research and came back to Mecca and Shoshana and said, hey, listen, in my story you'll read that this is the first harp that's been made in Jerusalem in 2,000 years. Well, people in Jerusalem read it, and an old rabbi in his 80s read about this harp that had been made. He rushed over to the studio. He walked in. He said, you have a 10-string harp here? I do. May I see it? You may. May I hold it? Old rabbi held this ten-string harp close to his chest. He started to weep. Shoshana said, why are you weeping, rabbi? He said, because the Talmud, extra-biblical Jewish writing, the Talmud says when a ten-string harp shows up in Jerusalem, it's the time for the coming of the Messiah. Boy, when I heard this, it moved me. We're living, maybe in that day. Well, That's not all. They did not have the menorah. If you look at the relief on the Arch of Titus in the city of Rome, you will see that the Roman soldiers were carrying a menorah, the seven-branched candelabra, back to Rome. Rumor has it that it's in the basement of the Vatican. The Israeli government dispatched their minister of religious affairs to go have an audience with the Pope to ask him to confirm or deny that he had the seven-branched candelabra. He refused to confirm it or deny it. And so they proceeded to make their own replica of the original candelabra, the menorah. It now stands on display in the cardo in the old city of Jerusalem under heavy security. All implements have been made for the coming temple. And the priests, they're studying the priestly duties. In fact, a year and a half ago on the shores of the Sea of Galilee at Tiberias, where they disappeared 1,400 years ago, 70 wise Jewish men, experts in Judas Prudence, biblical scholars, came together and reformed the Sanhedrin. They're the ones who administer the temple, who elect the high priest. On my national radio broadcast the other day, I I talked to Professor Hillel Weiss. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's their spokesperson. I said, Rabbi Weiss, what's the status? He said, we just recently found the rare snail in the Mediterranean that produces the blue uh, die for the high priest garment. By the way, they now have that prepared. I said, what about the high priest? He said, we have decided upon a man we are going to select as high priest. My wife Judy and I, who's with me, uh, we uh, just returned from Jerusalem not long ago where we had opportunity to make contact with the high priest and several others of these who are part of the Sanhedrin. What am I saying? I'm simply saying all preparations have been made for Daniel's prophecy. At the midway point of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation will take place. There will be a temple standing after the rapture sometime before that midway point. The Bible tells us Antichrist, that false Messiah, that replica of Jesus Christ walks into a temple at the middle of the tribulation period, sits down, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and claims to be God, the abomination of desolation. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said, when you see this coming to pass, look up. I'm about to come. Not to rapture, his second coming back to Jerusalem. There's another place I'd like to take you, and again, I'm just moving over so many different important bits of information that would be helpful to you. Look at verse 37, verse 37. Now, this is at the end of his sermon. It's what we preachers sometimes do. You know, we come to a point in a sermon where that would be a great spot to quit, Uh, but then we say, oh, yes, I forgot something I need to add, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ did here. This is an addendum to his message. Notice what he says. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. As those days of Noah, the time of the flood, either before or after, maybe all three, at that time, as those days were, so it shall be at the coming of the Lord. Go back. He now becomes very specific. Go back with me to Genesis just a moment, and let me just point out a couple of interesting bits of information to you. The book of Genesis records the days of Noah. And let me just remind you, there were days before the flood. The Bible tells us that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. So there were days of Noah before the flood, and that would be Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis talk about the days of Noah during the flood. That's just a bit more than a year. And we could look at all the details. We'll not take that time. But let me just point out to you the days of Noah after the flood. If you have Genesis, go to chapter 9 and look at the last two verses of Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, verses 28 and 29. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so it was 350 years that Noah was able to live after the flood. I would suggest to you that Noah lived after the flood in the location that would attract our attention today and give us evidence of how close we are to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know where Noah lived after the flood? He lived where his great-grandson built a city. You see, in chapter 9, verse 1, God tells Noah to be fruitful, multiply, and repeople this earth. There were only eight souls after the flood left on the earth. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, his three sons, and their four wives. And he said, Repeople the earth. Chapter 10, verse 1 gives us evidence that's exactly what they started to do. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, And then to them were sons born after the flood. Slip over to verse 6. Let's skip Jepheth. Look at his son Ham, verse 6. And his son Ham had Cush. Now, Cush is his grandson. He's going to have a son. Look at verse 8. And Cush begot Nimrod. Nimrod was a great grandson of Noah. Look at verse 10, what it has to say about Nimrod. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Instead of doing what God had told Noah, his sons, and all of their descendants to do, be fruitful and repeople the earth, Nimrod, great-grandson of Noah, went to a place called Babel. Babel, in the Bible, used 350 times, referred to most of that time as Babylon, was a city that Nimrod went to build on the shores of the Euphrates River in the land of Mesopotamia, the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, in the plains there, the plains of Shinar. Folks, that's modern-day Iraq, where Babylon was established and is today. Look at chapter 11, verse 4, just a moment. Here's what Nimrod and his people, as they went in defiance of what God told them to do, into Babel and establish this kingdom. And the Lord, uh, in verse 4, and they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. And so what Nimrod did was go in and build a city, not spread out across the world. He built one city, Babylon. You study scripture, and from Genesis to Revelation, Babylon, that city, is a major player the world scene, at the beginning and at the end. Babylon is going to be a key location. In fact, the Bible tells us Babylon, this is the 18th chapter of the book of Revelation, Babylon in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, after the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem, Babylon will be established as the one world economic, political, governmental system. Nimrod gave us a prototype of Babylon. The Antichrist, once he destroys the religion that is established here in the first half of the tribulation period, headquartered in the city of Rome, goes to Jerusalem, goes into the temple, they set up an image of him in the temple, which the world is caused to worship, or they die, and then Antichrist goes to Babylon, the literal city of Babylon. You see, Babylon has never been destroyed. The book of Daniel chapter 5 says, Babylon the empire was destroyed. Ezra, living in Babylon 75 years after the destruction of the Babylonian Empire, came into Jerusalem. That's Ezra 7. Alexander the Great established a world kingdom headquartered in Babylon. That's 200 years after the destruction of the Babylonian Empire. Peter went out to do what Jesus told him to do, spread the gospel to the world and established a church in Babylon. That's 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Babylon has never been destroyed. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. You know, I don't care what you think about politics, politicians, or the war. But I can tell you this. I believe the United States government now stands in Iraq to rebuild this war-torn country. Because the Bible says in Revelation 17, 17, God uses world leaders to accomplish his will. You can agree, disagree, it doesn't matter to me. Babylon had to be up and operating for the Antichrist. The last thing that happens, the very last thing according to Revelation, chapter 16, verse 17 and following, before Jesus Christ steps back on the Mount of Olives, Babylon is destroyed. And then Jesus Christ comes back. That being the case, Babylon must be rebuilt. Thus, it must be taken out of the hands of a dictator who was killing 300,000 of his own people. Before that, there must be a temple. This is a documentary on the rebuilding of the third temple that CBS used for a national television program. I've documented all the preparations for that temple. And of course, before that, we're out of here to be with him. The stage is set. Every actor is in place. The lights are dimming. The curtain's about to go up on those events a temple and Babylon before Christ comes back. Again, I say before that. We go to be with him. Two questions. If we're so close to this. How close could be? If we're so close to that. How then ought we to live? Father, thank you for your awesome, amazing, articulate, authoritative, accurate, absolute word. That is a divine description of the days of destiny, a time when all will unfold. As told us in your word. Might everybody listening to my voice, they may not have understand, ever understood every single prophecy that I talked about, but they understand the bottom line, Christ is coming. Let's make certain we're prepared by knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then living pure and productive in light of what is going to happen seemingly in the very near future thank you lord for your word given to your people describing your plan for the end i beseech to move into your will for your glory in that precious name we pray with thanksgiving